What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, welcome to a Wednesday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. This is our program that is geared primarily for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. So if you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 271 2985 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 You can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. So if there's anything that you've thought about the Catholic faith that has kind of tripped you up, we often ask the question, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? If you'd like to answer that, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you're in dialogue, perhaps, with a non-Catholic and have run across a a roadblock of sorts theologically that you're having a hard time uh, getting over, then give us a call. We'd love to talk to you about it today. I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price. Michael McCall... Producing the program, sitting in for Charles Beery, and uh, your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Rich Jesse handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And the only person who's doing what he's supposed to be doing is our host, Dr. David Anders. How are you? Jack, I'm great. How about you? Terrific. Thank you very much. You know, I, I owe producer Charles Beery a, a, an apology because... You know, I always give him grief for interrupting our conversations by starting the show on time, but <laughs> Michael McCall just did the same thing, so apparently it's not just Charles. They're all slaves to the clock. Rose is watching us on YouTube, and she says, You often say Catholics don't worship saints because they don't offer sacrifice to them. What distinguishes sacrifices like praise, honor, time, good deeds, etc., from sacrifice as you mean? Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, sacrifice, I suppose, is an, is an analogous concept, meaning you could apply the word in a lot of different contexts with, with various shades of, of distinction. And so, you know, I could I make sacrifices for my wife and I make sacrifices for my children. Um, and uh, I, I think what we have in view here is the kind of sacrifice that, that Christ indicates in John chapter 4 when he speaks about the the true worship in spirit and in truth that the Father desires, or when St. Paul writes in Romans 12 that, that our rational act of worship is the offering of our living body, of our bodies in living sacrifice. I mean, this, this kind of total self-donation to the highest good is really what we have in mind. Now, the principal liturgical act where we offer sacrifice, and a ritual of sacrifice, is, of course, the sacrifice of the Mass, uh, which is the ritual representation of the death of Christ on Calvary and the true body and blood of Christ on the altar in reparation for the sins of the world. And uh, there's nothing like that. There's no equivalent in terms of our veneration of the saints or even our love for one another or the sacrifices we make for our families. This is really a, 
uh, you know, the, 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 the ultimate act of self-giving, Christ's self-donation on the cross, which is recapitulated by us in the Mass, there's nothing like that, no equivalent in terms of the way we're devoted to one another or even to, uh, even to the memory of the saints. I got an email from Stephen, and he says, In reading the Acts of the Apostles, they say the witnesses laid down their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. I know Saul was changed to Paul, but what is the meaning of laying down their cloaks to him? Was that a signal that they no longer followed Stephen, but Paul? No, thanks. I appreciate the question. He was uh, he was the cloakroom attendant. It was like, here, hold my clo- hold my coat while I go kill this guy. You know, literally, he was standing by, like watching over the garments, so so they could go do the deed and and murder <laughs> Saint Stephen. You wonder if he gave him one of those little one of those little red tags. You know, yeah, I, I'm gonna go with no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> based on my limited history, my limited first century Palestinian history knowledge would tell me no. Um, Edward says, when God made a covenant with Abraham, didn't he have Abraham sacrifice some animals? And if so, why? Um, yeah, God God did make a covenant with Abraham, and it was ratified by sacrifice because that is the way ancient Near Eastern covenants were ratified. And there's uh, there's uh, more than one reason for that. Uh, you remember that very enigmatic passage in Genesis when uh, Abraham takes an animal and he slices it in two, and then he falls into a trance, and then he sees a vision of a smoking fire pot passing between the pieces, and the Lord calls out, the Lord, the Lord, and he, and he reestablishes, he restates the covenant with Abraham. So there was a sacrifice there. Uh, but of a very peculiar kind, and if you don't understand ancient Near Eastern covenantal rites, it'll go right over your head. Uh, and what was going on there was when ancient covenants were ratified, say, between a suzerain and a vassal, the vassal would offer a sacrifice, but he would also indicate that the, that the separated pieces of this animal would represent what would happen to him if he broke the covenant. It would be as if he said... Uh, may it be done to me as it was done to this animal, should I ever break my duties towards you, my suzerain, my lord. And so the interesting thing about this passage is, in ancient Near Eastern rite, it should have been Abraham who walked between the pieces and called down a curse on himself, basically saying, if I ever break this covenant, you know, woe be to me, and it'll be like this animal. But interestingly, it's the theophany that, that stands for the Lord's presence that passes through the, the, the pieces, as if God were saying, will be unto me should I ever break this covenant. Now, it's easy to see in that, with the benefit of hindsight, a, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, an anticipation of when God actually did suffer death and, and, and uh, uh, as it were, become a sacrificial victim, not because he'd broken the covenant, but on behalf of mankind. Again, the phone number is 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. What's stopping you from becoming Catholic? Uh, Maybe over the past weekend, over our uh, celebration of the Christmas holiday, maybe you got together with some family uh, who had some questions about the Catholic faith that you were having a hard time answering. We would love to talk to you about that today. Again, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
Magi is a set of beautiful Christmas cards that feature a night view of the three wise men on their way to Bethlehem. And now is a fantastic time to take advantage of getting your Christmas cards squared away for next year. Inside these cards, it reads, May the light of Christ bring everlasting joy to you and those you love. And the Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2 verse, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Each deluxe box includes 15 cards and 16 gold foil-lined envelopes. So you're allowed one mistake per box when you're addressing these cards. There are many other styles of cards on sale as well. Just visit EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com to pick your favorites. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. And standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN, that is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. First up today is David, a first-time caller in the great state of North Carolina, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. David, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hello, Dr. David. Uh, Thank you for doing the show, and uh, just wanted to call and uh, ask a question. I'm a uh, new Catholic, a convert a couple years ago, and I have a, a good friend who's an evangelical Protestant, a great guy, and he's serving as a missionary currently in Africa. And, you know, we've had quite a few conversations, um, but one thing in particular kind of bothers me is he is currently performing baptisms, um, and he's, he's baptized a lot of people, and he is not an ordained pastor. Um, So I guess what I'd like is kind of get some clarification on, you know, how does the Catholic Church view this type of baptism, and what kind of, you know, pastoral advice could I give him um, in this situation? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So it would be a little bit like dispensing uh, an antibiotic when you're not a physician, Right. Uh, the antibiotic is real. It works. It, it will it will cure infection. It will get the job done. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, but the ideal thing would be for it to be dispensed by somebody that had the proper medical training to make the right kind of diagnosis and, and instruct the patient on the proper follow up. In the same case, baptism provided that one use the formula instituted by Christ, that's water applied to the scalp, and the celebrant has the intent to do what the Church means by baptism, and pronounces the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, provided you have those elements. The Church regards it as a valid baptism. Protestant va- baptism is valid baptism. I was, by personally, I was baptized in the Presbyterian Church when I was a little tyke, and that's a valid baptism. Um, but the sacraments properly belong to the Church. So somebody who is validly baptized becomes, in at least a remote way, a member of the Catholic faithful. And because it's the right of entrance into the Catholic Church, it's, it's proper, it's appropriate for a person who's baptized to be instructed in the Catholic faith so that they can uh, live their Catholic duties appropriately and benefit from all the graces and benefits that, that accrue to, to Catholic identity. But the Church recognizes that there are times when that's not going to be the case and, and permits and, in fact, would even encourage 
baptism by someone who's not an ordained minister, uh, particularly in a case of urgency like danger of death. That's a long-standing practice in the Catholic Church. Mid- midwives have been baptizing expiring babies for, for a very, very long time. It's regarded as valid by the Church and permissible and, in fact, the right thing to do before somebody dies. So you, David, if you if you you know saw somebody who was about to die uh, and you, there's no chance of getting a priest, you could validly baptize them. All right. Now, uh, but ideally, the church says it should be a priest or a deacon or minister of the church or somebody authorized by the bishop. Uh, but Protestant baptism uh, it can be valid baptism. So I think the best way to handle this with your friend is not so much to discourage him baptizing people. I think it's not a bad thing, given given that he's not initiating them into the fullness of Catholic life and doesn't intend to. He is initiating him into the Christ, and that's not a bad thing. Um, you could you could count that as a point of contact with your friend and say, hey, you know, the Catholic Church regards these baptisms that you're performing as valid, and did you know you're making crypto-Catholics everywhere you go? You might say something provocative like that and open a conversation about ecclesiology. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Grab one of these open phone lines. That's what Andrew did. He's a first-time caller in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Andrew, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Hi. Um, I'm a Catholic, and I've got a couple evangelical friends. And every once in a while we get into theological discussions, and we always kind of hit the same roadblocks. Um, so... Uh, it always boils down to, if it's not in the Bible, they don't care. And worse than that, sometimes it gets down to, if we don't agree on the interpretation of a particular line, then <laughs> it ends there. Um, so just, I don't know, I mean, I, I try some of the reasoning with, you know, the Bible didn't always exist, and, you know, there's extra-biblical... Christian writings and stuff like that, but it's just strange that uh, it's just it's hard because you know the interpretation of the scriptures evolved over time, and it's I don't know. <laughs> I think I can help you. I appreciate you, you the used question. To be a roadblock. I, I, absolutely, I, I know where you're coming from. <laughs> so, so the the doctrine that you're speaking about, Protestants refer to as the doctrine of sola scriptura, or the Bible alone. And they hold it as an article of faith. It's one of their cardinal beliefs that you should not put forth anything for Christian belief unless it can be established by the plain words of Holy Scripture. So here is a major difficulty with the doctrine of sola scriptura, namely that it is uh, self-refuting. So let's, let's, take, let's take that premise that you cannot put something forward as an article of faith unless it is established by the plain words of Scripture. Okay, well, does the doctrine of sola scriptura itself meet that test? Does the Bible tell us that the 66 books of the Protestant canon are, in fact, the Church's rule of faith, and that no article can be put forth for belief unless established in these 66 books? Absolutely not. There's not one page of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that makes that claim. Nor can it be inferred from the pages of sacred scripture. In fact, the one thing you can't even get out of the Bible is the list of biblical books. You can't even establish what constitutes the Bible from within the pages of the Bible. Now, uh, last time I checked, Protestant confessions of faith will list biblical books. Take the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians, for example. It says, here are the books that are inspired by God, A, B, C, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way down to Revelation. So there, there they are, putting it forth as an article of faith. But guess what? No passage of scripture identifies the list of inspired biblical texts. 
And so the, the thing is, is utterly self-refuting. It's incoherent. Um, now, that's, 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 that's just one problem. That's problem number one. There are many other problems. Um, here's another problem, and you, you alluded to it. Problems of interpretation. Now, uh, Catholics can disagree about the interpretation of biblical passages, and that's all right. We know how to live with that tension. It's not, not a problem, right? Because we know when our disagreements matter and when they don't. We know when our dis—and the Protestants disagree as well. They disagree as well. But how do they determine whether a disagreement is substantive, whether it really matters that you disagree? The way a, a Catholic would frame that is how do you know when you're dealing with a dogma of the faith, something all Christians have to believe, and when you're just dealing with a matter of theological opinion, and opinions can vary, and that's okay. Well, I contend— that within the system of Protestantism, there is no principled way to answer that question. There is no principled way. Now, there's an arbitrary way you can just assert, but there's no principled way to differentiate dogma from opinion within the frame of reference in Protestantism. Let me, let me demonstrate what I'm talking about. So if I asked a Protestant today, say an evangelical Protestant, what do I absolutely have to believe in order to be a Christian or go to heaven? And I, you know... That'd probably get a standard list of things, like, well, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, and and uh, I might get a particular theory of the atonement, like, he bore all the penalty for my sins, and so I'm saved by faith alone. Something like that would be sort of standard boilerplate evangelical response. Here's the interesting thing. If you'd asked a Presbyterian or a Protestant 500 years ago that question, you'd get a different list. You'd get a different list. John Calvin, who is the progenitor of most of American Protestantism, uh, my apologies, you Lutherans out there, um, uh, once wrote a book in, I think it was 1541, called A Little Treatise on the Lord's Supper, in which he said that the proper understanding of the mode of Christ's presence in the Eucharist was a doctrine necessary for salvation. And that was such a contentious issue in the 16th century that Protestants were willing to break fellowship with one another over the question of whether or not Christ was substantially present in the Eucharist. Now, I don't know any Protestant today, outside of Lutheranism, that would, that would hold that that doctrine is a matter of saved or not saved. They might disagree on it, but they would also agree to disagree. Whereas 500 years ago, they did not agree to disagree. The only thing that changed was culture. Nothing theological changed in between. There's no principled way to get at that question. How do you know what's a dogma and what's an opinion? The text itself doesn't serve the function for which they believe it was designed, namely to settle controversy and to provide clarity in the act of faith. It doesn't actually do that. And I think a simple a perusal of the Bible, if you approach it with an open but critical mind, indicates that there's not one book of the Bible that puts itself forth as the kind of literature, the, the genre of literature, that could serve as a rule of faith. I mean, take the largest book of the Bible, the Psalms. Psalms are beautiful. They're inspired. They're edifying. They're prophetic. But they hardly, they hardly divulge a system of theology or articles of faith. They're poetry. And you can do that kind of analysis with each of the biblical books you know, poetry and narrative and, and occasional epistolary exhortation, none of them adds up to anything like a, a comprehensive statement of faith. And so the, the reason that Protestants believe in sola scriptura is not because the Bible taught them to, to do so. It's not because the Bible even functions effectively as a rule of faith. It's because they learned it from their tradition. 
And that's another deep incoherence, because they all hold that the Bible is authoritative over tradition. And yet the reason they hold this doctrine is they inherited it from Protestant tradition. It was essentially the brainchild of Martin Luther put forth in 1519 in the Leipzig debate with John Eck, when he was pushed to the wall and forced to admit that his doctrine contradicted sacred tradition and church authority. And so he fell back on this claim, well, I'll just stick with the Bible alone. He sort of arrived at it you know, by force, uh, but not by any kind of rational inference from the nature of the Bible or itself or anything from sacred revelation. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We've got wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Unfettered access to a former non-Catholic, Dr. David Anders. Formerly non-Catholic. Gary writes in, why does God want us to have faith and to believe in him without seeing him? Wouldn't more people believe if God in God if we could see him? Uh, yeah, it wouldn't be belief then, now would it? It would be knowledge. And, and the church is pretty clear that belief is not a species of knowledge. It's a different cognitive act. It's one that requires uh, a response of the will. See, one thing about knowledge is that you can't not know something once you've known it. You can't choose—I mean, I can't—I couldn't decide to not know the multiplication tables. I mean, I just know them. Try looking at text in your native language and not reading it, if you're literate. You know, I'm looking at the call to communion sign over here behind Jack, and I, I, I can't not know what it means. I just—I see it, and immediately, boom, I intuitively understand. That says call to communion. Can't not do that. Faith isn't like that. Faith is a decision to entrust yourself— to someone because it's the right thing to do, because it's the morally appropriate stance to take, and it may be rational to do it, but it's not demanded that uh, intellectually. It doesn't, co- it's not com- doesn't compel my mind to act in that way. It's similar to the way one would respond to one's spouse. One makes an act of faith in another human being to entrust yourself to them in marriage, uh, to regard them as trustworthy, to, to, to be committed to that covenantal relationship. I don't have an absolute lock-solid mathematical certainty that my wife will never flake out on me or leave, nor she, I, right? It's a, it's a moral commitment that one makes to one another on the basis of good evidence, and there's, there's profound reasons for doing it, but it's very different from an act of knowledge. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Congratulations are going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. Holy Family Radio in Grand Rapids, Michigan is celebrating 13 years as an EWTN affiliate. They have 4 a.m. and 4 and FM Signals. Uh, congratulations to Vince Gale, Bob Mulderink, and the whole team at Holy Family Radio from your friends here at EWTN. Again, the number to reach the program, it's a toll-free call. It's 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you are outside of the United States and Canada, that number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, 
and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. TWTN's called to communion with Dr. David Anders, Anders, asking the question, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? If you'd like to answer that for us or ask a question of Dr. Anders, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Matthew writes in, can the magisterium ever make a mistake and what are the limits of the church's infallibility? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So we have to distinguish between extraordinary acts of the magisterium and ordinary acts of the magisterium. The extraordinary magisterium is when the Church, in its organs of infallibility, intervenes to define a matter of faith or practice or, or, or uh, morals and, and indicates in the formulation that it is, de- it is a defining act that binds the consciences and the wills of, of Catholics everywhere. When it acts with that kind of solemnity, it does not err. It is infallible. Now, um, infallibility is a different charism from inspiration. Inspiration means that the very words are God's own, and God said exactly what he wanted to say, when he wanted to say it, how he wanted to say it. That does not apply in infallible acts of the magisterium. So an act can be without error. Um, Two plus two equals four. There, I just pronounced something that is not erroneous, but would be incongruous with the theme of this show. If I just started spouting mathematical formula, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. The context would be wrong, uh, and you would question my reason. So a, a pope or a or council can define a doctrine, and the doctrine itself can be true, and yet that doesn't guarantee that the formulation itself is prudent or, or felicitous or timely. I'll give you a historical example. Uh, when the First Vatican Council defined the dogma of papal infallibility, uh, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman, um, who uh, uh, may one day be a doctor of the Church, and he's regarded as a kind of quasi-doctor by many people, so a very noble Catholic authority in theology, Newman believed that the definition was true, but imprudent. He thought that the Church should not have defined the doctrine, and so he was known as an inopportunist. He said, it's true doctrine, shouldn't have said it. Now, I'm not telling you that I think Newman was right. Newman may very well have been wrong. Uh, but the point of the fact is that it is an intelligible position for a Catholic to take, even someone of Newman's stature, to say, yeah, the Church was right in what it said, but wrong to have said it because it was the wrong word at the, at the, uh, at the wrong time. Um, you know, kind of like uh, if your if your aunt asks you what you think of her new hat, and you answer honestly, right? You know, it's, it might be true, but you don't have to. Say. So I, I just draw that distinction. I'm not saying that any extraordinary act of the magisterium, magisterium was imprudent in that way. I'm just saying it's it's really different from it's different from inspiration. And so you could draw that kind of analysis. Well, it's imprudent to make a statement like that. Now, when we're talking about acts of the ordinary magisterium. 
yeah, doctrinal error is possible and, and probably has happened even at the papal level, certainly has happened in other organs of the magisterium. So bishops, you know, routinely might make mistakes. Priests make mistakes all the time. Theologians make mistakes all the time. Uh, and even popes can can make uh, doctrinally erroneous statements. So John the Twenty Second, for example, Pope John the Twenty Second, famously believed in the doctrine of soul sleep. He denied that the souls of the just experienced the beatific vision immediately upon death. Uh, to his to his credit, he never defined that dogma, and the dogma itself hadn't been formally defined before John the Twenty Second. Although it was a common Catholic belief that the souls could see uh, the vision of God. Uh, but he was wrong. He was wrong about it. So after John the Twenty Second died, his successor Benedict XII published a papal bull um, that uh, that defined the dogma of the of the beatific vision. And so nobody's going to make that mistake again. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's our toll free number. A couple of open lines at eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Tom is in Fredericksburg, Virginia, listening on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Tom, you're on with Dr. Andrews. Uh, Merry Christmas, Jack and Dr. Andrews. Thank you very um, much. Yeah, the question I have, a couple weeks ago during Advent, we had a reading from the Gospel, which the uh, Pharisees uh, encounter John the Baptist at the Jordan, and they ask him, uh, are you the Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet? They don't ask him if he's a prophet, they ask him if He's the prophet. I'm wondering, who are they expecting? Uh, who are they referring to? Thanks. Yeah, thanks. They are expecting a prophetic character mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, when Moses was expiring. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen, etc., etc., etc. So there's an expectation that a Moses-like figure will arise in Israel, uh, who and of course you know the, there's nobody else like Moses in all of Old Testament history. So the from the Pharisees' point of view, whoever this prophetic character is that's expected, it isn't Isaiah, it isn't Jeremiah, it isn't Ezekiel. It's, it's nobody of Moses's stature had arisen. Uh, the Jews have a saying: "From Moses to Moses, there's no one like Moses," and it's actually meant in praise of Moses Maimonides. They thought that. Moses Maimonides was the bomb and the best thing since the biblical Moses. But that gives you an idea of how elevated this status was of Moses in, in, uh, in Jewish imagination, and that's what they're expecting, somebody that would be of the stature of Moses of the Old Testament. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. You're about to divide a household, David. Okay. Paula is a first-time caller from Des Moines, Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Paula, you're on with Dr. Andrews. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my husband and I were reading the Bible, and I don't know how this came up, but I thought that all people were born with the Holy Spirit, and my husband said that's not necessarily true, but he didn't really, he didn't know. He's um, in a men's group, and they discussed this a lot at church, and so I just wondered, what, does it say somewhere in the Bible, is that something that's clear, but when does the Holy Spirit, when do we become one with the Holy Spirit? Is it confirmation, or uh, just wondering what your words were on that? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, in a strict sense, uh, we receive the Holy Spirit at the Sacrament of Confirmation. Um, 
And, and so when we talk about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's really what's in view. And that's what we see in the book of Acts and uh, uh, multiple passages when the apostles would pray for new converts and the Holy Spirit would descend upon them and empower them supernaturally to bear witness to Christ. That's really what we're talking about, receiving the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit acts in a lot of ways uh, outside of that sacrament. So the Holy Spirit is, of course, active in all of the sacraments. When someone is baptized, um, we don't refer to baptism as receiving the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is active, affecting the supernatural power of baptism that unites them to Christ and makes them a member of the Church. Uh, the Holy Spirit is active in prompting conversions. So when someone has an actual grace that would move them to repentance, for example, we can talk about the Holy Spirit's action in that person's life, but in a in a way that sort of precedes salvation, precedes sanctification. It's not a self-intrinsically sanctifying. Um, and of course, the Holy Spirit was active in the moment of creation, bringing the created order into being at the Word of God. So it, it's not like you know, the Holy Spirit is uh, sitting on his hands, so to speak, doing nothing until confirmation. But in a strict sense, we talk about receiving the Spirit at confirmation. We next head to the Republic of Texas. Tammy is another first-time caller listening on Guadalupe Radio. Tammy, you're on with Dr. Andrews. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to get clarification on the Pope's recent ruling on the ability uh, giving the priest the ability to bless the same-sex marriage? Yeah, thanks. I'm so glad you asked the question, because the Pope said nothing of the sort. In fact, he specifically disallowed that blessing. He, he went out of his way to say that priests cannot bless homosexual unions as such, and nothing that a priest does could ever be construed or should never be construed um, as putting a homoerotic union uh, as anything like having the equivalent status as, uh, as, as the marital union. And so he said it's, you, you cannot have any liturgical act. Uh, there's no formula of blessing. There's no sacred rite. Um, anything like that would sow confusion in the minds of the faithful and suggest to them that the Church was blessing a union that's intrinsically immoral. So it, it, it actually says the opposite of what you, of what you said. What he, what he did allow for was, let's say someone is in a homosexual relationship, quote-unquote married or not, and that individual approaches a priest and asks for a blessing. So think about a context. So let's say you're at a pilgrimage site, maybe somebody has taken a pilgrimage to Fatima or Lourdes, or, or um, uh, they're viewing the Tilma in Mexico City or something like that. And obviously there's priests all over the place. It's a shrine and their sacraments being celebrated and people are there for, you know, blessings and, and, uh, and graces. And so, you know, a couple walks up to a priest and he look, give kind of eyeballs them and thinks there might be something funny going on here. But they say, Father, would you, we're here, you know, on this pilgrimage, would you, would you bless us? And what the Pope says is in that instance, the priest needs to distinguish between the request for blessing the union as such, as if he were solemnizing the union, and the, and, the, and the request for a blessing as an indication that a soul might be desirous of a deeper union with God. Now, of course, uh, anybody who comes to God comes from the state of sin, right? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, how many of us have, have found ourselves in some wayward state? And we, we approach, maybe we pray to God directly and say, you know, God, I'm in a bad way, I need help. Or maybe we approach a minister of the church, and maybe we're not very well informed 
about what it means to get close to God. And we just say, I need help. You know, would you pray for me? Would you ask that God bless me? That's okay to do, right? Because we need God's grace in order to get out of the state of sin that we're in. Um, And so that's what the Pope says. He says, you, you, you don't turn somebody away if they ask for blessing merely because they're in an intrinsically immoral situation. If you did that, you'd be turning away the whole world before they came to faith and sanctity. But if you do that, if you do act in that kind of a circumstance, you must act in a way that will not give the impression that you're blessing an immoral union as such. My advice to anybody who is troubled or confused in any way by this document is to read the dog. Read the thing. It's only 45 paragraphs long. It is not long. It's very short. And while one can certainly make anything that they like of just about anything they read, this is not ambiguous. No, no. Generally but speaking. He, here's what I predict. The the usual suspects will take this document and make it say what they want it to that's say right. and do what they want to do. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. And just as a point of clarification, this is not an encyclical letter. This is not a papal bull. This is technically... He has to approve it, obviously, but this is technically a document that was issued by the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Right. So, in the sake of clarity. That's right. Uh, Richard is a first-time caller in Fort Myers, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Richard, you're on with Dr. Anders. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, My question is that... uh, why is the angels always portrayed with wings? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Um, I had a snarky answer. I was going to say because they look better than shoulder pads and roller skates, but that's not the real answer. So uh, we in sacred scripture, there are moments in scripture when, when invisible spiritual entities are represented by some corporeal form. Uh, when God is seen to be experienced through the senses, for example, when Moses encounters God in the burning bush, we understand that God is not a burning bush. God is not a burning bush. It's The burning bush is a kind of stand-in for God that enables Moses to have some sort of corporeal form with, it, with which to interact. And the technical word for that is a theophany. When you have these visible representations of God in Scripture, you call them theophanies. But angels are also spiritual beings without corporeal form. They have no bodies. Um, and yet, humans interact with a corporeal form from time to time, as, the, as Moses would say with the burning bush. But in this case, it is with interactions with angels. And the, the technical word for that, predictably, is angelophany. And sometimes when humans experience angelophanies in sacred scripture, the angel is depicted as a winged creature. But never the, the winged creatures of popular imagination and Renaissance art. We're not talking about you know, uh, handsome-looking, you know, blonde young men in white robes with a, with a wing on each shoulder. That's the way they're usually depicted. That's not what we find. What we find is bizarre creatures with with six wings, eyes all, all over their body, and, and various other um, uh, strange features that go, correspond to any uh, animal species that we know of that I think are meant to be somewhat frightening, but perhaps terrifying and awesome and awe-inspiring. 
Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, if you want to go read Isaiah chapter 6, you'll find an example, a premier example of that kind of angelophany where you have a winged creature. Uh, Ezekiel is full of that kind of imagery as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. I want to invite you to join us for the Sunrise Morning Show tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. In the first hour of the program, Jeff Cavins will be talking about the Babylonian exile and Herod the Great. And Dr. John Bergsma, one of my favorite theologians because he uses a lot of stick figures. I, I think that that says more about me than it does about him. I, I love Bergsma. He was here one day, and he was right outside the radio studio interviewing with Doug Keck when I was on the way to the radio. And I walked in, and I looked at him, and I was like, you're Josh Bergsma. You're the bomb. I love you. Yeah. And he was looking at me like, and you're a strange man. You know? <laughs> he's terrific. And tomorrow during the first hour of the show, he's going to be talking about the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Which, which happened to be the reading of the day when my late wife Susie and I had our marriage convalidated in the church. Not the most romantic wedding that? reading that ever was. Uh, in an hour number two, Dr. L- Leonard DiLorenzo will talk about uh, prayer and the nativity, and Joseph Pierce talking about the Lord of the Rings and Christmas. Uh, that's all tomorrow on the Sunrise Morning Show, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN. Philip is in Anderson, Indiana, listening on Indy Catholic. It's actually Catholic Radio Indy. Um, Philip, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, I love you guys, and uh, you're continually uh, bringing me closer to my faith. And my question uh, for Dr. Andrews is uh, I'm still confused about uh, Martin Luther in the uh, Lutheran, in the Lutherism, uh, was was he part of the Catholic Church back in the 15th century, and he broke away, or uh, what is the yeah the history sure of I can absolutely help you there. So what what people don't realize about the Reformation, about Luther, generally speaking, is uh, they, they think that Luther just kind of popped out of nowhere, and and that he was this, if they're a Protestant, they think he was this clarifying light sent from heaven. If they're Catholics, they might think that he was a demonic figure who thought something up out of his own head. Um, but the truth is a little bit more nuanced than that. Luther lived at a time when the sentiment for reform of the Church was very widespread, uh, in fact, the the concept of reform, the idea let's let's fix an institution and restore it to a kind of pristine purity, that that idea doesn't emerge from nowhere, and you don't find it in the New Testament. You don't. Nothing in Scripture talks about reforming the church. Is an ideology that arose within Catholic monasticism within the monasteries, and uh, and then pervaded Catholic civilization for about four hundred years before Luther you find constant calls for reformation. It's not a Lutheran idea. It was really a Catholic idea, again, that came out of monastic life. And and Luther belonged to a reforming order. He was a monk. Uh, he was what was called an Augustinian hermit, and it was an order that came into existence specifically in the interests of reformation, of reforming Christian life. And so that was that was the culture in which he grew up, the culture that he lived in. Um, Luther did have some peculiar ideas, but he also had a peculiar psychology, 
And my own read of Martin Luther, I'm persuaded that Luther was profoundly neurotic. That is to say, he had a lot of really negative emotions. He was deeply depressed. He was highly anxious. He wrote about his emotional life quite extensively, and so I'm not making this up. I mean, he told us this. And and uh, the, the particular nature of his neurosis was that he could never feel any kind of comfort or assurance with respect to the grace of God. And and uh, for reasons that are pedantic, and I won't go into them now, he came up with a very novel interpretation of St. Paul, Paul's letters to the Romans and the Galatians, and asserted a doctrine that no one had ever heard before, and that was Luther's doctrine of salvation by faith alone. He, he, that he did make up, but he had, he had reasons that he thought that the Bible said that. And when he began his, his public work of calling for radical reforms that ran contrary to Catholic tradition or Catholic sentiments, um, he saw himself as a Catholic priest. He was, in fact, an ordained Catholic priest, and he thought that he was calling the contemporary Catholic Church back to what he thought was an ancient model of Christianity. Um, problem was, the rest of the Church didn't see eye to eye with him on that, and in 1520, the Pope said, hey, man, you've, you've really gone over the line. Up until 1520, and Luther started his public protests in 1517, so for a good three years there, uh, Luther thought of himself as a Catholic priest, and all of his contemporaries thought of him as a Catholic priest who had some wacky ideas. And again, we have a long history of Catholic priests with wacky ideas, right? I mean, if you go through history, almost every notorious heretic in Catholic history was in fact a priest, right, who, who kind of went off the rails. So people, he was par for the course, and people recognized the type, okay, this is an ambitious Catholic priest who's got some wacky ideas. And when he, when he started to really contravene the tradition of the Church, uh, that's when it got out of hand, and the Pope said, okay, you need to, you need to come back in line, or I'm going to have to excommunicate you. And, uh, and then and that, this, is, this was the decisive moment, 1520. Uh, Luther said, uh, do your worst, Pope. I'm, I'm not going to come back in line. And so the Pope excommunicated Martin Luther, and at that point, he was a condemned heretic. And so it, it was clear from 1520 on that anybody who followed Luther's doctrines or his reforming uh, goals— was no longer in communion with the Catholic Church. But up until 1520, he would have been seen by everyone, including himself, as a faithful Catholic. You know, I think that probably has something to do with the fact that they had a lot of people's ears. Yeah. Probably not the only ones that had goofy ideas, but That's they right. were in a position to be heard. Well, it's, it's not only that they had people's ears, it's that they also had theological education. I mean, your, your typical layperson, for most of Catholic history, wouldn't have had the technical expertise to, to, to make a good... Uh, heresy with with sticking power, you know. I mean, they they did, but they were they were little things that petered out, you know. That may have been a statement that's never been uttered in the English language before. <laughs> oh, next up is Brian. He's a first time caller in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Sirius XM Channel One Thirty. Brian, you're on with Doctor Anders. Hi, Merry Christmas to you both. Uh, Traveling across the great archdiocese of Omaha today, on listening on Sirius XM. Uh, one of my most favorite movies during the holidays is The Christmas Carol, and I know I assume that Scrooge was redeemed uh, partially through the efforts of Marley. But when uh, Scrooge asked Marley if there's anything he could do for him, Marley responded, uh, "No." So obviously. In his mind, prayers wouldn't even help. Uh, but then he mentioned, as part of my penance, I've come for your sake. So 
if he had tenants, was he on the road to redemption or was he just doomed? All right, thanks. I really appreciate the question. This is kind of fun on this Christmas holiday. Your favorite keep, theologian, keep, Charles Dickens. Keep in mind that Charles Dickens was not a Catholic. Uh, my understanding is that he was uh, he had Unitarian sentiments, and this is an artistic work, right? That's meant to convey, uh, you know, a sentiment about forgiveness and, and charity and repentance and the holidays. But he he is uh, he is you know more or less inventing or or drawing up on a rather superstitious theology and cosmology in order to to express those sentiments. Um, it'd be kind of like the way I would review I would view, um, uh, 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 you know, this the status of um, Hamlet's uncle, right? And Hamlet doesn't want to murder him when he's at prayer for fear that he'd go straight to heaven. I mean, like, interesting fiction, not instructive theologically on the right attitude to take towards eternal life, right? You know, Um, so I wouldn't want to do theology, I wouldn't want to exegete theology from Dickens. Uh, What I would want to do instead is within, within Dickens' own worldview, within Dickens' theological scheme, I think we have to take it at face value, you know, for a Catholic... This is not what either hell or purgatory look like, right? I mean, obviously, a soul in hell isn't getting out, right? It's not like you do you do your tour in hell and then you get out, and uh, and and purgatory is also generally not understood to be, um, you know, the haunting of a ghost. So so um, uh, I I don't think either one I don't think I don't think we can fit the story within within a Catholic theological framework. And really quickly here at the end of the program, Mike writes in, Why did God punish the descendants of Adam and Eve for a sin they did not commit, except Mary and Jesus, of course? Um, right, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, the, only, the only answer I can give you, ultimately, um, it's a mystery, we don't know, but the only answer I can give you that makes any sense is that the, the sanctifying grace that Adam and Eve had from the moment of their creation is not something due to them by nature. And so our condition that we come into life without the gift of sanctifying grace is not an injustice. You know, like, who deserves an eternity of bliss from the moment of their creation? No, it's utterly gratuitous that God would grant us such a thing. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven today, Mr. Rich Jesse. I'm Jack Williams, once again sitting in for Tom Price. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow, same time, same channel. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. God bless.